Hello everyone and thank you for joining us again for our Seedbed series. I'm so glad that you've joined us. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie Keys, and I am blessed to be the Amarillo Campus Pastor for First Methodist Church. I do want to say before we get into the sermon, if you are watching us and you live in the, the Amarillo area, I want to invite you to follow our Amarillo Campus Facebook page. We recently launched that, so if you want to stay informed about some of the things going on in the life of our Amarillo Campus, you can find that by searching First Methodist Church Amarillo Campus, or our media team will also put a link in the comments below. We'd love for you to follow us and, and just stay informed about things that are going on in the life of our Amarillo Campus. Now, getting into our sermon for today, I hope that you've been following along throughout this series. Uh, we, we we're going to talk here in a moment about some of the topics that, that we've discussed throughout the last three weeks. Uh, if you haven't watched those sermons, I encourage you to go back and watch those because this series, more than many others, is designed to be a total package. We want you to have all of these uh, ingredients in your life. Because as I said, this sermon series is called Seedbed. And as you know, and as I know, the whole goal of planting a plant into the ground is for it to bear fruit. Uh, we, we plant tomato plants so that we can get tomatoes. We plant apple trees with the hope of getting apples. And most of us know that having the plant is only half the battle. The soil that the plant goes into also has to have the right nutrients, the right amount of water in order to give you the best chance for that plant to produce fruit. What's well, that same idea that inspired our seedbed series? We, we want and we believe that all of us, there's some essential ingredients that all of us need in the seedbeds of our hearts and our minds in order for the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in us, what we would call the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of the Spirit. So if you identify yourself as a Christian, that, that's what you should be striving for. Your, your goal, your, your emphasis, your, your focus should be on cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that these fruits are produced in your life. And I want to read those for us. These are found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. These, are the, the, these should be the byproduct of a healthy, well-established seedbed for our heart and our, and our mind. Things like joy peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It goes on to say that there is no law against such things. And I encourage you to, this is a great scripture to memorize. I encourage you to go back if you want to read this again and try to memorize it again. It's found in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. Now, we're in week four of our Seedbed series, so we've been talking about these essential ingredients for the past four weeks. I want to remind you just quickly of what we've talked about over the, that time period. In week one, we tried to understand the Trinity, which is a, a lofty goal. The Trinity is, is complicated and mysterious, and we even talked about in that sermon, it's kind of designed to be that way. It's not something that we absolutely have to understand in order to appreciate and value. But we talked about why the Trinity was important for us to understand and to defend as believers. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the Bible. We talked about why the Bible was important, why it was, in trust, why it was trustworthy, and why we should be reading it, memorizing it, and meditating on it. And then last week, we talked about what it meant to be the 
church. We really pushed back against that idea of, of we go to church or church is a place that you go to or church is a place that you're at. No, we really pushed back and said that is never meant, that was never what the church was meant to be. The church was always meant to be a gathering of people. We talked about it's the called out ones. The church is something that we are, not a place that we go. And so today, I'm glad you're tuning in today because today's sermon is offering a two-for-one special. We're going to be talking about two essential ingredients instead of one. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on the topics of grace and holiness. Grace and holiness. Now, oftentimes when you hear these two topics discussed, you hear them listed in that order. Grace and holiness. But it is my opinion that it would be much more helpful and much a much more healthy perspective to have them listed in the reverse order because it is my belief that in order to fully understand the depth of God's grace the grace that God offers to you and he offers to me we have to first understand his expectation of holiness for us his created beings and that's our main text for today that's where that inspiration comes from we find in Matthew 5:48 Jesus commanding us be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect now before you tune me out or before you start typing or chanting nobody's perfect nobody's perfect uh, let, let me explain let me take a few moments to explain what jesus is really trying to communicate in that statement because that, that word that we translate as perfect is a Greek word. The, the New Testament was originally written in that Greek language. And that Greek word is teleos. Teleos. And the, the, the definition of that word teleos means complete, full, mature. So in this text, when Jesus is saying, be perfect, therefore is your heavenly Father is perfect, what he's actually saying is we need to grow up. That if we call ourselves Christians, we should be growing up. We should be maturing. We should be seeking after a full, well-developed life. We should be growing up. And that's really clear in the context that we find Matthew 5.48. Because just before that verse, just before Jesus made that statement about being perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect, he says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, in this section of Scripture, Jesus is actually telling us, he's teaching us that who and how we love is evidence of our maturity or our perfection in Christ. It matters who we love and it matters how we love them. And that is actually evidence of our level of maturity and perfection in Christ. Now, we're not only as Christians called to perfection, we're also expected to be holy. And I get that from 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, that tells us, like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in your ignorance. 
Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now again, we, we have this translation from Greek into English, and what was translated as holy in the English is the Greek word hagios. And that word hagios means sacred, pure, or consecrated. And consecrated is just a fancy way of saying something that has been set apart for the worship or the service of God. So we are called to set apart our lives for the worship and the service of God. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called by God to perfection and holiness of life. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he talked quite a bit about that. One of his quotes, he says, Perfection is another name for universal holiness, inward and outward righteousness, holiness of life arising from holiness of heart. Now, Wesley's saying that God expects us to be holy inwardly in our hearts and in our thoughts, and perfect and holy in our actions, how we treat others, how we worship God, how we treat ourselves. And I have to say, God is completely just in expecting that. God is completely just in expecting both inner and outward holiness and purity from us, his creation. Because as we discussed in week one of our Seedbed series, you and I were created in the image of God. And God is perfect. And God is holy. And so you and I were created to be a reflection of his perfection. Your life, how you act, how you speak, how you treat yourself, how you treat other people, all of that should be a reflection of the perfection that you were created in. That's why God calls us to be perfect as he is perfect. And again, John Wesley talked about that original state that we were created in back in Genesis 1. He says this, Such then was the state of man, humankind, in paradise. By the free, unmerited love of God, he was holy and happy. Talking about Adam and Eve, they were holy and happy. He knew and loved and enjoyed God, which is life everlasting. And in this life of love, he was to continue forever if he continued to obey God in all things. But if he disobeyed him in any way, he was to forfeit all. In that day, said God, thou shalt surely die. Man dis did disobey God. He ate of the tree of, of which God commanded him, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. And in that day, he was condemned by the righteous judgment of God. Again, let me remind you. The standard for which humankind is called, the, the bar that has been set for us is holiness, is to live as a reflection of God's perfection in relationship with God through that relationship. And, and I, I want to address something here. I think a lot of times we have this idea that, that God just wants to control us and he's kind of this, this otherworldly buzzkill and I just want you to hear, I just don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that God, in giving us that commandment to be holy and to be uh, perfect, was meant to be this rigid means of controlling us uh, and, and keeping us under control. I think God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that 
living in a state of holiness and perfection would produce the most satisfying life possible for his created beings. God knew that if he could, if he could guide us, if he could inspire us to live holy and pursue perfection, that, that the byproduct of that, the fruit of that, would be a life that is satisfying for the long term, not just a drop of satisfaction in the moment. In other words, I think God loves us, and so he calls us to holiness. Because God loves us, because God wants us to have a life that is satisfying, he calls us and expects us to live a holy life. Now, unfortunately, as, as we learned from John Wesley, Adam and Eve, uh, who were the first to experience that, that loving relationship with God in a perfect environment, they rebelled against God. And they rebelled against God by attempting to decide for themselves what was best for them. And of course, this led to death being introduced into God's creation, and it made it impossible. It made it impossible for humans to achieve the standard of perfection and holiness that was expected of us. Now, I think a lot of us get that. We, living in this world and interacting with the people around us, we realize that, that perfection is impossible. Perfection is, is difficult. Uh, sin has become a barrier to a life of holiness. And I think that's a lot of times why it's really, really easy to, to just say, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And we just dismiss it as nobody's perfect. But I'm here to tell you that's true. Nobody is perfect but they can be. I believe nobody is perfect, but I also believe they can be. Now, how could I believe that? I believe that because of God's grace. God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. And I believe it is God's grace that makes it possible for us to become, despite sin, to become holy, and mature and perfect, again, according to that standard that God has set for us. As Methodists, we actually believe in what's called free grace. That means that we believe that God's grace is free and available to all people. And this teaching is, is from John Wesley. It's the original teaching of the Methodist movement, and it was inspired by Romans 8.32, along with several other scriptures. But in Romans 8.32, it says, He, being God, who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? So if, if God, who refused to withhold his son from being persecuted and, and crucified on the cross, if he didn't withhold his own son from us, wouldn't he not, in doing that, also provide everything else that was necessary for us to live that holy and perfect life that he knows will be most satisfying and most joyous for us? Another way that you could explain that text, that Romans 8.32 text, is that God would never expect something from us that is impossible, i.e. perfection. God would never expect something from us that is impossible. I would also go on to say that God would never be unwilling to help us accomplish something that he's called us to. He's never going to expect something from us that's impossible. And those things that seem to be impossible are going to require his help. And he is always willing to provide that help. And most often that help comes in the form of his grace. Again, John Wesley described free grace in this way, saying, first, 
It is free in all to whom it is given. It does not depend on any power or merit in mankind. No, not in any degree, neither in whole nor in part. It does not in any wise depend either on good works or of righteous of the righteousness of the receiver, not on anything he has done or anything he is. It does not depend on his endeavors. It does not depend on his good tempers or good desires or good purposes or intentions. For all of these flow from the free grace of God. They are the streams only, not the fountain. They are the fruits of free grace and not the root. They are not the cause but the effect of it. Whatsoever good is in man or is done by man, God is the author and the doer. Thus is his, free, his grace free in all. That is no way depending on any power or merit in man, but on God alone, who freely gave us his own son and with him freely giveth us all things. So this free grace is available to all of us. God has ensured that it's not based on, on how good you are or how, or how faithful you are. God in his infinite grace has made it available to all people. Wesley wanted to be very clear in his teaching that God's grace was free and available to all. This means it's not based on what, how, how you've earned it. It's not whether you deserve it or it's not something that you can purchase with, with good acts or with, you know, with giving away money to the poor. It is free to all people due to the work of Christ on the cross. Now, again, I want to remind you, there's nothing you can do to gain any more or lose any of the grace that God has made available to you. Because again, you can't earn it. It's something that God has given. It's something that God has made available to all of us because of Christ's work on the cross. So there's nothing you can do to gain any more. There's nothing you can do to lose any of it. But there are many things that you can do to experience more of God's grace. I like to think of God's grace like a waterfall. Just a big, beautiful waterfall flowing off of a cliff. Now, if you walk up to that waterfall and you put your hand in that waterfall, you're experiencing the waterfall. It's hitting your hand. But taking a few steps forward and standing with your whole body under the flow of that waterfall is an entirely different experience. That's how I think about God's grace. I can put my hand in and just get a little bit of that experience of God's grace or through some acts of my own, I can take a few steps forward and experience the fullness of the power and the grace of God. Now, as, as Methodists, we, we describe grace in, in primarily three forms. There are many other forms of God's grace, but we typically speak of three. We talk about prevenient or preventing grace. We talk about justifying grace. And we talk about sanctifying grace. Now, these aren't three different graces. It's all one grace. It's all God's grace. But these terms and this structure is just humankind's best attempt to try to describe and understand how God works in and through our lives. Now, personally, I think, again, John Wesley, I'm a little biased. I'm a Methodist. But I think John Wesley did a fantastic job of, of giving us a way of understanding how these three graces, the the, the Provenient grace, sanctifying grace, and uh, justifying grace, how all of those work and flow and move through our lives through his analogy called the house of grace. And so I want to walk us through that analogy, the house of grace. Now, to begin with, you have to imagine 
your perfect house. For me, I imagine a house that looks like this. We're gonna put a picture up for you to see it. Uh, this is my dream house. I love everything about it. I, there's something about a wraparound porch that is just amazing to me, especially when that wraparound porch has like a porch swing or a, a large gathering area for people and uh, to sit and, and uh, be in each other's company. It's just, it, it's so inviting. And when, when I see a house like that, it, I just get these images in my mind of, of conversation. There's this implied community with a house that's built that way with that kind of emphasis. I just, again, see in my mind time with friends or family gathered around outside laughing and watching the kids play and enjoying lemonade uh, on the porch. When I see a house like that, it's almost like the house itself is inviting me to park my car and walk and come inside and enjoy all that that house has to offer. That, that's how I experience a beautiful house like that. And, and, the, and, and in Methodism, we would call that experience God's prevenient, the grace that goes before, or God's preventing grace. Prevenient grace is the grace of God that pursues us before we are followers of Christ. It's the, it's the love of God that loved us while we were yet sinners. Provenient grace is what inspired the good shepherd to leave the 99 and go after the one. It's the grace. Provenient grace is the grace that helps us and enables us to both understand and receive God's love. That's provenient grace. Grace and, and that type of grace is described in Romans 2, 4 when it says, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Just as that, that house for me is just calling me to, to, to just walk up onto the porch and enjoy all the goodness that it has to offer, God's grace calls us to come towards him and enjoy all that a relationship with him has to offer. Now let's go back to the, to the analogy again. We're going to go back to that beautiful house. We're going to put that picture back up for you to look at. Now when you, when you see a house like that and you, you sense that kind of invitation, that's a good thing. But in reality, you're not in the house yet. You're still kind of standing out in the yard and wanting to get up on the porch, but you're, you're not in the house. You're not enjoying all that the house has to offer. So what you have to do is park your car. Open the door, get out, walk up onto the porch and grab the doorknob of that house. And because you know you're invited, because you know you're welcome there, you turn that doorknob and you cross over the threshold of that doorway into the foyer of that beautiful home. That, that moment of transition of opening that door and crossing that threshold is what we as Methodists would call God's justifying grace. It's God's grace that actually forgives your sins. That, that's that moment of salvation. And that, that moment is, is illustrated through the doorway. As you open that door, you're making a decision to open the door. You're making a decision to cross the threshold of unbelief into belief. And you're entering into both a relationship with God, but you're also entering into God's house of grace. 
This, you see the cooperation there? It's both, both God's grace, but it's you cooperating and turning the door knob, making the decision, receiving the salvation, participating in God's justifying grace. This, this type of grace is, is often described through Romans 3, 23 and 24 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we've found the house. We're, we're wooed by the beauty of the wraparound porch. We've stepped up onto the porch. We've opened the door. We've entered into God's house of grace. We've experienced provenient grace and justifying grace, and we're standing in the foyer of God's house of grace. Amazing and beautiful. But unfortunately for many of us, that tends to be where our faith journey ends. For some reason, we tend to, tend to just be content to just stand around in the foyer of God's house of grace. But can I just tell you, if you're, if you're watching, there is so much more of God's grace and God's goodness that can be experienced. Wesley would, would talk about that. He would, he would urge believers, if they've experienced the inviting nature of provenient or preventing grace, and they've entered into faith in Christ through the power of justifying grace, they would, he would look at those believers and say, now, Explore God's house of grace. Explore, uh, seek out the depth and the, and, the, and the width and the height of God's love and his grace and his calling for you and for your life. This, this analogy of, of exploring God's house of grace, of, of entering beyond the foyer and going into the living room and in the kitchen and, and just going into all of God's house of grace, that is meant to help us understand what, is, what we call, Methodists call, God's sanctifying grace. God's grace that, that makes us holy, that, that cleanses us, that, that purifies us. This is the grace of God that, that prods us, that, that pushes us, that convicts us, that also empowers us to pursue the holiness and perfection that, that God expects and desires for our lives. God's sanctifying grace works to help make us holy in our hearts and in our lives. Now, there are many ways that we can experience or we can encounter these graces of God. Now, again, I want to be clear, this is all one grace, but it's our, these terms are to help us understand how God's grace works at different moments and different times in our lives. There are different ways that we can experience those, different ways that, as I said earlier, we can step deeper into the waterfall. Wesley would describe those ways as means of grace, means or opportunities or ways to, to step deeper into that waterfall. He talks about the means of grace in this way. By means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to humankind preventing, justifying, and sanctifying grace. These means of grace, I want to be clear again, are, are not earning more of God's grace. They're not proving that you deserve more of God's grace. They are simply ways to place yourself in a position to experience more of the grace of God that, that God has made available to you. Now, again, there's lots of different means of grace. I want to give you several that, that we talk about in, in the Methodist church. A few examples would be reading, meditating, and studying the scriptures, 
memorizing the scriptures, prayer, spending time in prayer, praying for yourself, praying for others, also listening prayer, being silent and letting the Lord speak to you, fasting, attending worship regularly, receiving the sacraments. Uh, as, as Methodists, we have two sacraments. We have the sacrament of baptism and we have the sacrament of, of communion. We also have the means of grace of giving generously to the needs of others. I mean, I, I just think about that. Has there been a moment that you've blessed somebody financially or given somebody something they can never purchase or acquire on their own and what that, how that impacted you and your relationship with God? Feeding the hungry, sharing your faith with others, submitting to Christian accountability, doing good works. All of these are ways that we can step deeper into that waterfall of God's grace. So in response to what we've talked about today, I want you to think about this question. And I don't want you to think about it on your own. We are meant to be in community. Find some friends or family members or maybe your grow group and talk about this question. Are you truly pursuing a life of holiness and perfection as God expects for you, as God hopes for you, as God knows will bless you. And if you're not, that's okay. Just admit it. That's a great first step. No, I'm not. But if you're not, I want you to think through and pray through which of these means of grace are you going to make a commitment to so that you can begin moving forward and begin, begin pursuing that life of perfection that God knows will bless you and will provide joy for your life. As we close, I want to remind you, yes, no one is perfect, but they can be, and that includes you. I hope you've been blessed by our conversation today. If you have questions or comments, uh, please put them in the comments below or, or email our team through our, our website. We would love to continue this conversation uh, beyond uh, this sermon. hope you're blessed, and you have a great day.